Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for conversations that matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendorf for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. This week, we have a special Facebook Live interview with three practitioners that are navigating the pandemic in the field of education. In a few moments, we'll jump into a conversation about incarnational partnerships with schools. But I do want you to know that you have the opportunity to present questions to our panel guest. If you'll comment on the right, if you're on Facebook with your questions, and I can't promise that we're going to get to all your questions, uh, especially since I know that our guest will be dispensing an unbearable amount of wisdom and nuance uh, in our conversation today. Uh, we do need to recognize one of our annual sponsors. Uh, this podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find the ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you to take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe that wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And we help create spaces for congregations to hear and to recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and to find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Well, I'd like to welcome to our podcast, Cameron Vickery, Sarah Langford, and Angel Pittman. Thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. glad to be here. Now, Sarah, besides uh, keeping at bay the uh, devastatingly <laughs> handsome Jeff Langford, your husband oh and, and coordinator of, of CBF Midwest, uh, you're a local school teacher. Uh, give us a glimpse into how things are going um, with you this school year as it begins. Well, the key word is just flexibility. Um, things have been changing weekly, daily, um, but they are moving forward and um, we're just all, you know, kind of doing what we can to make it all work. 
Well, as part of Sarah's agreement to do this interview, all viewers will be required to take an Algebra 2 comprehensive exam at the end of the podcast. So, uh, so take out your number two pencil, blank sheet of paper. Uh, calculators are not allowed, but you'll, you'll need it at the end. Sounds fun. It sounds like Excellent. my worst nightmare, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love math. I love math. Oh, now, that's Cam- great. <laughs> now, Cameron, you serve as the Associate Director of Pastors for Texas Children. Tell us a little bit about the organization and your work. Yeah. Um, I live in San Antonio. Um, Pastors for Texas Children has been around for, I think, seven years. We just celebrated our seventh birthday. And mostly what we do is connect churches to um, schools. And a lot of churches are already kind of doing this organically through, um, you know, partnerships like mentoring programs or backpack feeding programs. But we're trying to kind of add an extra element to that ministry that they may already have um, going on, which is, you know, once you're kind of in there and you have those relationships and you see the kids and you see the needs, then you're led to kind of to advocate for them and sort of take your ministry to the next step. And so PTC comes alongside pastors and teaches them how to advocate for their public schools, how to maintain those important relationships with superintendents and also with their legislators Most of our advocacy is very state-focused, so I'm in Texas, um, but we also have Pastors for Children networks in, I think, nine states total. So, you know, most education advocacy is state-level, but that's kind of changing now, and we're entering the national advocacy world a little bit, too. So that's a little bit about what we do. Yeah. Angel, you're an educational advocate for CBF. You're serving in Miami, Florida. Um, you've been at the epicenter of Florida's coronavirus surge. How are, how are you doing and the people you serve? Yeah, so it's definitely hit Miami-Dade County very hard. Um, we have, uh, you know, I formerly served at Touching Miami with Love. Um, we have a number of staff who have um recovered at home, some who have been in quarantined in hotels. We've had a few who have had hospital stays. Um, Unfortunately, my husband and I just attended a funeral last weekend. One of our staff members lost their mom to Mm -hmm. COVID-19. We've known far too many people who have been severely affected by it. Um, So we're glad that our city and county are taking it seriously. Um, and trying to stop the spread because it is indeed um, hit our community very hard. Well, that's a good place to, to jump into our, our conversation. You know, the many things that can be said about uh, COVID-19, um, this pandemic has, has highlighted the economic and racial disparity in America. And, and this was not the causation of the coronavirus, but really just uh, the, the coronavirus has, has magnified. Um, Angel, you you uh, saw this economic and racial disparity before COVID. Help us to see what that looks like uh, before and now during this crisis. Yeah, so um, of course Miami is a very economically divided. You've got, um, you know, you can be on Miami Beach in a $10 million home and drive less than a mile to one of the poorest communities in the country, um, the community that I live in Overtown, um, struggles greatly with with poverty and the consequences of poverty. So that is not new. Um, What has really devastated our community with COVID-19 is the hospitality industry. In a city like Miami, our major um, industry is tourism. And with hotels shutting down, restaurants um, 
closing doors, many for good, um, a lot of folks are out of work. And so they have been, I think, hit disproportionately hard because the majority of workers in the hospitality industry are those low-wage workers. And so we're still um, in phase one in terms of our opening. And so we're only having dining outside. So folks who serve as hostesses and waitresses and waiters, of which I know several who are out of work because um, there's just a much smaller capacity for restaurants. And if they don't have the ability to serve outside, they are completely closed just for takeout only. So indeed, um, those have uh, been impacts as well as you know, frontline workers are your grocery store clerks just as much as your healthcare folks in terms of their exposure to the virus. And so we have seen a lot of families um, have to take time off, even if they suspect that they have been around somebody with COVID. And so that has a ripple effect throughout the family in terms of their economics. Well, zeroing in, you know, into your work as, you know, advocating for, for education, I mean, how have you seen this uh, disparity at, at work through this pandemic, specifically in the schools? Yeah, so um, we're very fortunate that Miami-Dade County being the fourth largest school district in the nation is, I think, a bit ahead of the curve. So as schools shut down in March, they distributed over 50,000 devices. Um, I've been in conversations as um, frequently as yesterday with one of our neighborhood principals, and they're continuing to distribute devices to students. Um, Touching My Love has shared um, dozens of devices with students as well. And they're also trying to get hotspots because um, that's also a need. You need that connectivity to, um, to learn online. But um, one of the things that uh, the disparity that has been the hardest is just having somebody at home to help little ones navigate how to get online and learn. And so that's something that I'm working directly with um, our local principals to discuss how can we do that when mom and dad work shift work and are at the grocery store, at the fast food line and aren't able to um, connect their kids. So how can we have a bridge between that? Hmm. Uh, Sarah, uh, you know, as a local school teacher, um, have you seen this crisis amplify the economic and racial disparity among your students and their families? And, uh, and if so, how? Well, I have. Um, I teach in uh, Liberty, Missouri, which is a suburb of Kansas City, and we are more of one of the affluent school districts. Um, but even in our district, we have students that um, are struggling and um, families that are struggling with the same thing that um, Angel mentioned, you know, just being home alone. And um, also a lot of my high school students having to take care of um, younger children. Mm-hmm. Our district has been able to continue with providing meals um, for families. Um, but I know in the Kansas City metro area, so that's close to us that, you know, there have been, um, you know, struggles. And our district has um, the availability of, we are what we call a one-to-one. So our students do have um, electronic devices and did at the at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but other districts around us, you know, have been working to provide those for students. Hmm. 
Cameron, uh, how have you seen this inequality in Texas? Oh, yeah, it's I mean, I, I do see it. I would say even before COVID, um, the best predictor for a child's educational success is their parents' income level. Um, we've definitely seen that to be true here in San Antonio anyway. And so now now with this, um, it really concerns me. Um, like Angel and Sarah were both saying with um, in the spring, you know, I think there were something like a third of students that, you know, we just never were never accounted for that never um, ended up logging back on when schools closed, you know, because parents were working um, or they didn't have Wi-Fi or their district wasn't able to pass out devices or they just couldn't get a hold of them. And so a lot of kids fell through the cracks and I'm worried that that's going to continue happening in the fall. Um, you know, my kids school, we start on Monday, this coming Monday. And so this week we've been going to the school for technology pickup and meet the teacher been, you know, scheduling meet the teacher over Zoom. Um, and I know that there's there's several kids that haven't um, checked in yet. I've, I've noticed that. And so that's my fear is that the longer that we stay virtual, um, the more kids are going to slip through the cracks and fall even further behind. We want to remind those watching that you can send us questions for our panel by uh, commenting on the post. Um, we also want to tell you about one of our other annual sponsors, uh, which is Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Now, in Louisiana, uh, the education system ranks 48th in the nation. An overwhelming uh, contributing factor to poor education system is the privatization of school. So Louisiana was the last state to enforce integration. And, and while the white community's response to forced integration was establishing private schools after private schools, many of which are founded by churches. Um, so what you see in Louisiana is a depleted public school funding and resources um, uh, tax benefits for private schools. And, and Louisiana public schools are underfunded. They're under-resourced with underpaid teachers and underprivileged children. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that Louisiana also ranks 50th in upward mobility and opportunity. I, I kind of wonder why. Um, Cameron, we'll start with you. Uh, for clergy and lady listening to this conversation, tell them uh, how advocacy is a natural place to turn to combat these kinds of facts and statistics in their state and community. Yeah. Well, I think especially for clergy, um, a lot of people wrongly believe that vouchers and, you know, which is sending public money to private schools is something that religious people would be in favor of because it would then go to their religious schools. And we just have to change that narrative and let people know resoundingly that that is not an option. That is not something that helps anybody. Um, first of all, religious private schools don't um, or shouldn't really welcome private uh, public funds, because then they're also accountable to the same regulations that public schools are. But um, the, the other thing that, that I think religious people need to know and need to make known in advocacy is, is that um, the more we peel money away from the public school system in whatever way, um, the less there is for the vast majority of Americans ki American kids. Um, I think 90% of American kids go to public schools. And so that's where 
all of our money needs to needs to go as well. Um, and you know, a lot of people say, well, you should we should be advocating for school choice and let families decide and give kids an out if they're in kind of a failing what they call a failing school. Um, and you know, that's, that sounds nice, but it's, it's actually not, um, a good solution because what happens if you get a voucher to take to, you know, a private school is that it usually doesn't, it almost never covers the actual, the full tuition of the private school. So that just benefits kind of the middle class or the wealthy that are already going to maybe use, go to those schools anyway. Um, and then you have transportation issues and it really benefits just a very small percentage of kids. Um, and it doesn't help, it doesn't help raise up, you know, all the kids that, that deserve the help and the, that deserve quality public education, um, which they can get in their public schools and they are being provided that, um, the biggest roadblock is funding. And so I think collectively, if people of faith can just say, you know, stop looking for excuses, stop blaming schools, stop blaming teachers for not doing well enough, give them the resources that they actually need to be able to do their jobs well and succeed. Um, so I think we need to do a better job of listening to teachers and um, school district leaders and, um, and, and, and trust them for once and say, you know, we're going to trust you to do your job and we're going to give you the money to, to do it well. Mm -hmm. As you do work in advocacy, you know, there's a certain accountability with politicians that make all sorts of promises. I don't know if there's a history of politicians making promises uh, and never, never fulfilling them, you know, but is there a way for us to create some accountability of, of promises made or expectations that, that come from, uh, from government or politicians or political parties as they talk about education that, that might lead to a really practical and long-term solution for education? Um, well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that exactly, but um, I can tell you that on a on a more local level, um, my experience with advocacy in Texas is that it's all about relationship. Um, they really will listen to their constituents, especially people, especially faith leaders have a really big voice um, because they know that you, um, if you're a pastor, you have the ear of, you know, hundreds or thousands of their constituents. And so they, they will listen to you. And so I think the relationship building aspect of advocacy is really important because if you come to them and, and hold them accountable, like you said, um, they, they really might pay attention. Um, so this summer, a lot of what PTC has done this summer is relationship building is just calling and checking in having zoom meetings with our state senators um, and important key legislators simply to check in and see how are they doing through throughout all of this what are they hearing what's going on what's concerning them how can we pray for them um, and so I think if you if you present yourself as a friend and um, you know their pastor really, then they're going to be much more likely to hear your concerns and, and for when you hold them accountable, they'll be more likely to respond. That's what we have found. I was just chuckling and thinking, maybe you do the pastoral care thing and anything you need to confess while we're on the phone together. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, take us into the classroom. You know, what does it look like for you uh, attempting to teach, uh, you know, to educate children and to lift them up despite uh, the failings of under-resourced school systems? Yeah, well, I'll give you a picture of kind of a day in, in my life as I am a high school math teacher and I teach all high school grades. 
um, nine to 12. And uh, this is my 30th year in public education, and I believe in it. Um, and so uh, in March, things really changed um, when we all stayed home. And for us, it was after our spring break. Um, and so immediately, you know, my attention turned away from polynomials and rational functions to how are you doing? You know, and that's one of the first things that I did when we came back together um, learning virtually is to check in with my students and to see, you know, what concerns do you have? Um, do you have any worries about, you know, having enough food or resources? And um, I had a lot of students that did have those. And so um, and a lot of students that had a lot of at the high school level um, added responsibilities for um, younger children, you know, I would be online with them. And meanwhile, you know, I would hear a younger sibling in the background and them turning their attention, you know, to talk with them. So, um, you know, that just came to the forefront that um, we needed to, you know, um, help them uh, with those. And so right now what we're getting ready for is um, we're returning, uh, teachers are returning on Monday to school and then students will start in three weeks. Um, and our um, district will have a situation where students will do a hybrid model. So some virtual learning and some face-to-face. -face. Um, and so now it's just a concern that, you know, we wanna prepare quality educating, education experiences along with, you know, just making sure that we're, you know, checking on our kids to make sure that they're okay. Angel, what does uh, advocacy look like for, for education on, on a local and state level? Take us into a little bit of, of your experience and expertise. Yeah, so when you think about uh, what inequities exist in low-income communities related to schools, there's a variety um, you're talking about PTA inequities, so that additional support. So a lot of districts um, and a lot of schools have the single device because maybe the PTA helped provide the funds for that school that the district didn't have, but that uh, support may not be at the individual school in a low-income community. Um, so that's one way that inequity is there. And then just community support. When you have businesses um, in higher um, economic areas, they're going to have more surplus to then give to the school. So be it a pizza party or a sponsorship. In low-income communities, those businesses often don't have that same kind of capital. And so they don't have that excess to offer to their local schools. And so when we're advocating for our low-income schools, we're trying to be bridge builders. We're talking with the schools about what resources do you have and what resources do you need and how can the faith community help bridge some of those things. So speaking with principals who don't have PTAs, well, how can we get business leaders and faith leaders to come and restart or support a PTA um, or fill in the gaps that a PTA does? So how can we create more equity by just looking 
um, to new places. Because, you know, as a parent myself um, and a former educator, our first instinct as moms and dads is to take care of our own kids. But as people of faith, uh, we're called to not just look after the children in our home, but we are really charged with caring for the whole community. Um, and it means looking out for that lost sheep and not just focusing on the 99, but where in our spheres of influence are um, kids who don't have what others have and how can we build a bridge to make sure that all kids have the support they need. And so that's what um, I've been focused on. And that involves um, a lot of listening and being sure that uh, you're coming to the table and uh, wanting to do with the community, not for. And so it's a posture as well as a promise. Hmm. Cameron, I want to go back to something you said earlier about calling government officials. Um, you know, for probably somebody who's never done anything like that before, that sounds pretty intimidating. So so walk us through what that looks like and and how you build an advocating centric relationship with, you know, whether it be um, the local school board or even the state or national level. Yeah, starting is starting is hard, <laughs> I will say. Um, so I would start small. And like you just said, school board, um, some of our school board members are some of my, my close, close friends. And I think um, if you reach out, they want to know you and they want to have a relationship with you. And then they can connect you with the superintendent who can connect you with your state legislator. Um, all of these people are used to working together and they will 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 share their connections for sure. Um, I think that's really the best the best way to get started. Angel, you've done a good bit of work, um, you know, uh, advocating, you know, and we spent some time together advocacy in mm -hmm. action this year. Uh, mm -hmm. Shout out to Stephen Reeves and John Mark Bowes as they, uh, you know, led that that initiative. Um, you know, walk us through kind of what that looks like, because uh, I, I will say that I participated in that for the first time and sat down with uh, three of my state officials. And, um, you know, even as a person who talks professionally, that it was pretty intimidating. So how do you prepare for a conversation like that? Um, I do it just like any other relationship. I try to find common ground. And so um, I, you know, for my own uh, national U.S. senators, uh, Marco Rubio was one that I had a conversation with. And I know a little bit about his family. I know where his kids went to school in Miami. Um, I have seen him at that school and spoken with him there years ago before his run. Um, and so just to, you know, I caught him in the hallway um, and just said, hey, I'm one of your constituents. Uh, we've got some commonality. I know your kids go to XYZ school. Oh, how do you know that? Well, I know that because we know the same person. And so that you know, just like anybody you meet at a dinner party, you you always try to find what's that common thread. And then from there, um, you know, I pulled on his uh, faith strings and said, hey, you know, as a Christian, I know you care about what the Bible says. And so we were able to transition that to the advocacy point that um, I was trying to share. So I would say it just comes uh, know who you're talking to and um, 
find that commonality and then it makes everybody human and it doesn't seem so intimidating. Mm. What does this, uh, what does this look like, you know, um, at the poll box, you know, how do we, how do we vote for advocacy? How do we present legislation, um, that is advocating for particular groups of people, maybe specifically for our conversation today, focus on, focus on education. Uh, Cameron, why don't you start with us, uh, for that question? Yeah, great. I'm glad you mentioned that because going back to what you said earlier about holding our politicians accountable, the voting booth is the ultimate accountability. So if they have not delivered on their promises, you know, you can let them know right there. Um, if you've been frustrated with a lack of leadership, you can make your voice known. Um, I've been really excited to hear the news that our local school district made voting day, November 3rd, a um, district holiday. And I think that's True. Some districts around the country have done that. And I think that's awesome because, you know, teachers often don't have time to go vote and now they will. And I think that that's really great. Um, but how do you vote with a pro public education mindset? Um, for me, it kind of goes back to what Angel was saying earlier about rather than just thinking about doing the best you can for your own and for your household, for your own children, having more of a communal mindset about that. Um, and thinking, how does my vote affect my neighbor? Um, and how could it serve my neighbor? Um, maybe I'm going to be okay, but, but maybe my neighbor needs me to vote this way. Um, and so I think the more that as people of faith, the more we can think like that, the more it might broaden our perspective um, for how we vote. This question comes from uh, one of our viewers um, based on the idea that there's a, a clear disparity of students during times of virtual learning, but also the data shows that people of color uh, and those in lower income communities are more likely to contract COVID-19. Uh, what, what is uh, the most important uh, thing to advocate for? Getting children back in the classroom safely or lessening the disparity in virtual learning? Um, Sarah, you know, we'll, we'll start with you. You're in, you're in the classroom. What are your thoughts? Well, that's hard um, because definitely when you can get back in the classroom, that's the best thing. But we just have to do that when it's safe and we shouldn't do it before. Um, so to me, it's that would be, you know, the priority. But then with a close second on if it's not safe, then we need to address that, you know, that disparity. Um, between resources. Mm -hmm. Angel? Yeah, I, Sarah's exactly right. Safety is the first thing. Um, I know that locally in talking with um, principals in my area on, you know, these gaps that exist, what can we do? We're focusing on attendance and, um, you know, what are the barriers to attendance and how can we take those and be sure that we're removing barriers and then also incentivizing kids, um, particularly like Sarah mentioned, she has students who have to care for younger siblings. Um, that's a real concern when parents have to go out and work. And so we're creating a program um, with principals in our area and trying, like I said, to bridge those gaps um, with the broader community in incentivizing kids and you know, because when they're young, they're not going to um, recognize 
you know, their investment in education. It takes a very long time for that investment to mature. So how can we help incentivize and reward um, kids just to show up? Because that's, that's the first step to make learning happen. Cameron, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really complex. I, I think that our priority as a nation should be to get these kids back in the classroom. That's clearly the best thing for them. The classroom is such a safety net for so many kids. And when that is taken away, um, it's, it's, it's problematic for sure. So we've got to get the kids back in the classroom, but like everyone is saying, it has to be safe. And so I think that our nation our, and people of faith especially need to understand that sense of urgency and to take this virus really seriously, to wear masks and stay home and not gather for, you know, um, Labor Day <laughs> coming up, um, but to do our part and make sacrifices. I mean, we are all really tired of this. We did not think it would be going on this long. And I sense that there are a lot of people, my friends included, that are becoming a bit desensitized to the fear of COVID um, and have gotten pretty comfortable and starting to step out. And, and um, that's only going to perpetuate this virus. And so I think if we can all have a bit of a more sense of urgency and be really disciplined um, and work together to, to um, get rid of it, <laughs> mm -hmm. then we can get the kids and teachers back together where they should be. Hmm. Yeah, you know, when, when you think about advocacy to, you know, I think we have the responsibility as uh, local church leaders, as followers of Jesus, uh, as people of faith that are in community with other people, to see the strong connection um, with the way that we cast our vote and, and those that we support. Um, you know, what we're dealing with in this, this pandemic is uh, a lack of leadership on so many different levels. And uh, while we are so easily swayed by uh, the tradition or faithfulness to particular uh, parties and politicians, uh, there are sometimes consequences for sometimes our mindless voting uh, to support people that we just think we should support. Um, and that seeing that when we cast a vote, it goes so much deeper uh, than just winning an office. And, and, and we talked about this earlier that, that we have a responsibility too to people keep those people accountable, you know, and it sounds super weird, but, um, you know, if you're disappointed in how your local and state and federal officials have handled this crisis, they, they don't know unless you call in and tell them. And that mm -hmm. sounds super intimidating and you can do that in a grace filled way, but picking up the phone and saying, look, as, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a follower of Christ, um, you know, as a minister to a community of people, um, here's how I feel about how things are, are going on. And I, I'd like that on, on the record. Um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit, talk about the church. Um, so, so many of our CBF churches have, uh, amazing incarnational partnerships with schools, but right now it all, and all looks and feels different. So for example, uh, where I serve university of Baptist church in Baton Rouge, our church has a strong reading friends program with the school right around the corner. Um, but our, our volunteers can't exactly go once a week and read with children who are not even on campus. Uh, so, Angel, we'll start with you. What kinds of innovation, uh, innovative incarnational partnership models uh, should churches be exploring right now? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is 
to talk with your school, find out what they need, where are their gaps, what, you know, is it reading buddies or is it something else? Because it might be something completely different, um, might be a new ministry area that you haven't even thought of before. So I would say, you know, have a posture of listening. Um, I would start first by loving on our teachers. Um, right now, educators are being thrown back and forth, uh, people saying, you know, they should be back in the classroom no matter what, and teachers are scared, and I think this is the time that we need to just show love to teachers, and so if a school, um, there are so many things that a school, uh, church can do at home, making goodie bags and just delivering them to the school, um, even if teachers are not teaching, like in Miami-Dade County, they're all virtual, um, the schools are handing out the goodie bags that we have left for the teachers um, as they come in to, to get supplies and such before the school year starts. Um, even such things as a takeout Tuesday, lots of churches started doing this last spring. And that's, they just do a drawing um, and, you know, share it around the school and provide takeout through a coupon or, uh, you know, a gift certificate to a restaurant. It's a wonderful way because a lot of our teachers are parents themselves. And so they're teaching all day. They're attending online workshops or staff meetings. And then they've got to turn around and take care of their families in the evening. So there's a lot of ways that the church can move beyond where their traditional partnership maybe has been um, and look to expand their partnership in new ways. But it starts with listening to the school and what those teachers and ed, uh, other educators need. Hmm. Sarah, we want you to be super selfish in this moment. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do you as a teacher, your fellow teachers, your students and your administration right, need, uh, right now need from, from churches who are, who are willing to partner? Well, I was just nodding and nodding as Angel was talking. And Cameron mentioned earlier, you know, how she connects um, churches to schools. And so I think that it's very effective that a church can have a relationship with a school. I mean, if it's with multiple schools, but you can build a relationship with the school and really find out the needs. And I agree, yes, that teachers right now, morale is low. And so anything to help us feel the love is wonderful. Um, you mentioned Takeout Tuesday, which is great. Um, Sonic, you know, I know one school in my district, they just have a big Excel spreadsheet with everyone's favorite Sonic drink. And you can just send that to Sonic and they'll make up the order. Um, so if anyone is willing, you know, and those are just small things, um, but they, I know just as the recipient of those kinds of things, they just mean so much that we care about you. We're thinking about you. Um, and that gives you as a teacher, just that extra, you know, boost to be able to turn to your students and, you know, give them what they need. Um, I know just in talking to my friends who are fellow teachers and administrators on all levels that all levels or all types of support are appreciated. You know, just spiritual support of prayer, prayer and, and more prayer, um, you know, as we start this and just acceptance, um, knowing that in the schools that these decisions that have been made are based on research and discussions and more research and more discussions and then, you know, just to be supportive in those types of things. Supplies with a lot of students who are learning at home, um, they lack things like markers, you know, art supplies, unlined paper, um, 
many teachers are putting together, you know, anticipating, especially in the elementary level, having students with them, but they're putting together individual packets of things. So, you know, just talking to a school and say, what do you need? Do you need smaller containers or Ziploc bags? Um, even things like, I know many schools all over, you know, the nation and the, um, in the um, middle and LN, sorry, secondary level are having the hybrid model where students will be at home maybe two or three days a week. And so especially, especially if you're a middle school age child, sixth or seventh grade, I mean, that's, that's a long time to be at home and to be at home uh, alone. Um, and so perhaps churches have an area where sometimes a week they could open it up if there's internet access um, where students could come. Uh, and be with somebody, a volunteer from the church. So I just think, yes, communicating with the schools, seeing what the needs are, and then just being open, as Angel was saying, to innovation. Hmm. Just to clarify, is Taco Tuesday preceded by Margarita Monday, or how does that, how does that work? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, Cameron, what about you? What, what kind of innovative incarnational and partnership model should churches be exploring right now? Well, all I can do is reiterate what Angel and Sarah have said. So, I mean, the first step is relying on those relationships that you already hopefully have um, with your principals at the school that you support um, and with your superintendent and ask. Um, I reached out recently to one of my school board members and, um, you know, she said, oh, what I'm hearing, all I'm hearing from teachers is we want prayer. We want prayer. We want prayer. Just, just like you said, Sarah, um, because teachers are in a, the most difficult position of their careers and you know that all eyes nationally are on them and they're just under a lot of pressure um they can't win you know if they complain about being afraid then then they're not committed enough um uh so so teachers are in a really difficult position and i think um as churches we have a lot of teachers in our churches and even the ones that aren't, um, the ones, the teachers at our nearby school that we support, we've got to go the extra mile to make them feel really appreciated this year more than ever. Mm -hmm. um, and then just some other things I've heard, like from uh, one of my superintendents asked for virtual school supply kits. So Sarah, like you were saying, um, you know, a lot of kids show up at school normally in person without the necessary supplies, and that's no big deal. They can get them there. Um, but they can't go door to door and pass out the school supplies that they're going to need at home to do their work a lot of times. And so we've helped organize some virtual supply kits with headphones even for um, elementary kids so that they can concentrate and maybe have better luck. And hopefully we'll be back in school in a few weeks. But until then, maybe that can get them by. Mm -hmm. um, and then the only other thing I think I would add is that, um, you know, churches, again, I feel like a broken record have a moral authority in the community. And so if we can lead by example and encourage people to take the virus seriously, to wear their masks, maybe churches lead by not meeting in person for a little bit longer, um, or at least encourage safe practices, um, all in the name of getting kids back in school. I think, I think it's really important for churches to take the lead on that. Hmm. Yeah. This question comes from one of our viewers. Uh, when we're trying to move uh, move from the idea of of white churches not showing up as white saviors, and uh, not to tell stories of children of color that there um, aren't ours to tell, um, 
when we're trying to talk about moving from charity to justice, how do we how do we start these hard conversations within our church? Um, you know, for a lot of people, they don't necessarily see this as a theological issue. Uh, they might see it as a political issue. So um, how how have some of uh, these conversations gone? Um, have you experienced in your church? Uh, how have you helped lead part of these conversations? Uh, Cameron, we'll start with you. Mm, I was hoping you would not start with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, that has not been a problem in my experience. Um, I think that the more we can just talk about what's good for what's good for our kids is the same thing that's good for everybody's kids. Um, I think if you're a parent and you want something for your child and you want a quality education, then you can guarantee that um, every every mom out there wants the same thing. Um, and so I think, you know, rather than thinking of like the haves and the have nots or us versus them and, and trying to otherize people, we just remember that we're all part of the same community and um, I don't know that, that answered your question at all, but <laughs> oh, it does. Uh, Angel. Yeah, I think that um, there are some premises that we, again, I'm always going to look for commonality. And so when I'm talking with people of faith about the importance of education, um, I start with, you know, we all believe children are a blessing from the Lord, right? Yes. Okay. We all believe that um, Jesus tells us in Matthew what the greatest commandments are, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And God gave us our mind and the ability to learn, and that is a gift from Him. And as Christians who see um, children as a blessing from the Lord, we need to care about their whole selves, and that includes their mind, their ability to learn, and therefore their education. And so um, I think that's part of it. But uh, again, it's that looking back to where are um, injustices and what does the Bible say about that? And the Bible is abundantly clear that when people of faith see injustice in any way, we are the ones expected to make a difference. It doesn't call out, I mean, there are some places in the scripture that they call out leaders, but um, by and large, the call is to people of faith to see where injustice exists and to make it right. And so if we are aware of educational inequities, um, then we just need to uh, see where those are and be a part of making those right. Mm. Sarah? Yeah, I just have to agree with what Angel said, that I think that it's just comes down to the individual. And, you know, I think of it just in terms of an educator, you know, in my classroom or on my Zoom meeting, um, and that I need to do what I know is right. And like what Angel was saying is, you know, when I see injustice, then, you know, I'm going to take a stand. And um, I just think as people of faith that individually, that's what it comes down to. One more question from uh, one of our viewers. Uh, when churches cannot provide the same type of services to children, like after school programs, like providing transportation or gathering for programs, what are some other ways that churches can minister to children um, with everyone's safety in mind? Um, Angel, we'll start with you. Well, 
Um, you know, they they do say that it's safe to meet outdoors, six feet apart. And um, some churches that I partner with have opened their parking lots, their very large, empty parking lots, and chalked out uh, six feet apart circles and used their um, uh, audio systems and had fitness times. And, you know, churches can get creative in their communities um, to provide some of that extra uh, that the kids aren't getting when they're sitting in front of the school day, uh, in front of the screen all day. So there, I, I would say, um, you know, look, a lot of people are sharing online their very creative ways that they're connecting and, and just ask, well, what if we did that? What, what would we need to do and come up with the plan and try, you know, try with the small group of kids and um, then see where it goes from there. But churches, if they are ready to get outside of their walls, um, they, they have great minds in there. And like you guys all said, there's a lot of educators in our churches who probably have a lot of great um, ideas that nobody's asking them, you know, what they think. Yeah, like Margarita Mondays. Sounds like a great <laughs> idea for all teachers that are, are teaching virtually. Uh, Cameron, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that there's a lot more we can do virtually and on Zoom than we ever thought possible. Um, and I think that that will probably be true for this school system as long as we need to be virtual. Um, but we may not know until it really gets started. Um, I've just this morning had Meet the Teacher via Zoom with my three kids, teachers. And a lot of questions I have, they don't know the answers yet. Mm -hmm. We're just not gonna know how it goes until it's going. Um, and I think the same is kind of true for volunteers and for churches. And so the important thing again is to ask and stay, maintain that relationship and keep asking, you know, because it's not on the teachers or the principals to do our jobs for us. You know, if they don't know, if they don't have an answer for you right then, ask again the next week and say, hey, one week of school has gone by. What are you seeing? Where where can we hop in? What are the problems? Um, are there kids that need a reading buddy? Because how easy is that to do over Zoom? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that that is something that we should keep in mind once school gets started to check in regularly and, and to see where we can jump in. Mm -hmm. And I would add, Andy, for churches who maybe don't have a school partnership or are a little intimidated by that, um, now's the perfect time. You know, if you have not developed a relationship, I know even myself reaching out to a new principal, I was worried, oh, they're probably so busy, they don't. And so I just, you know, sent over an email and said, I'm sure you are super busy, but... I would love to be a resource if you're interested in talking. Within an hour, I got an email back. Can we talk tomorrow? <laughs> and principals, particularly um, low-income areas, they need support um, doubly. And so mm -hmm. I would say use this as an opportunity to make that partnership connection if you never have before. Yeah. And I would, I would jump on that angel and just say that even if you don't have something specific to offer, um, mm -hmm. don't be shy about just emailing and saying, you're doing a great job. I'm praying for you. They are getting so much communication right now that is negative. 
and they're navigating all these problems that virtual learning is, is causing for families, which is legitimate. I'm not saying that they're complaining unwarranted, but they're having to troubleshoot a lot Mm -hmm. and they're exhausted. And so I think just getting that one positive email or phone call can really make a difference in their, in their morale. Yeah, I agree. Sarah, bring us the final word here. Well, I was just going to say that, um, I think there are so many things that just individuals can do. Um, for example, there are some, especially elementary students and, and schools that will be meeting face-to-face. And if a school is um, able to, some of them will be accepting volunteers. And so if someone is willing and has the time to do something like be a playground monitor, because you know, with teachers having to Um, just track with their one little pod of students, you know, that would be a a welcome break. Um, I was talking with a uh, elementary school principal and he was saying that, you know, libraries are going to look so different. So if you're willing just to come to the school for a while, if they're accepting volunteers and to take around a library cart, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just things that you can do that um, just are, are, will cost you time. Um, if, if you're able to and willing to do that. Um, other things like online and virtually, um, if you could tutor, you know, especially math, <laughs> that's <laughs> always a needed um, area. But, you know, just contacting a school and either saying individually, I can do this, or as a church, you could create a list and you could provide it to them and say, here you go, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, since uh, 2016, uh, CBF has brought you over 150 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. Uh, These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join and connect deeper with the podcast. You can become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience at next summer's General Assembly's podcast um, guest. Uh, Hopefully we have one of those in person. Uh, There's five levels of listener support starting at $5 a month. Uh, For more information, you can join the community of listener supporters at cbf.net backslash podcast support. Um, I want to extend uh, a word of thank you uh, to those who have been watching and adding your great questions to this conversation. Many of the questions we're not able to get to, um, but I'm sure our panel will be uh, reading those comments afterwards and can contribute uh, wisdom and expertise uh, to those areas. Uh, We want to give a special thank you to the educators, the janitorial staff, the cafeteria workers, the counselors, the administrators who are at the front lines helping expand the opportunities and minds uh, of, of children from across the world, no matter their race, their ethnicity, their social status, their economic status, their gender, or their identity. Um, and Cameron and Sarah and Angel, I want to thank you for joining the conversation. But more importantly, I want to thank you for the unique leadership um, that you bring and being the incarnational presence of Jesus in the incarnationals in the education system. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the